When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Starobin, and welcome to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Susie Linfield, who teaches cultural journalism at New York University. She's a former editor at the Washington Post and the Village Voice, and she's written for a wide variety of publications, including the New York Times, The Nation, Dissent, and The New Republic. Her previous book was The Cruel Radiance, Photography and Political Violence, and we're here to talk about her most recent book, which is The Lion's Den, Zionism and the Left, from Hannah Arendt to Noam Chomsky. Welcome to America and Beyond, Susie Lentfield. Thank you for having me. Let's start with where you start in uh, the book. I have the uh, the soft cover, copyrighted, published uh, 2019, and Here we have you, and I'll just read briefly from the vignette, New York City, 2011. I am at a dinner party with my partner and his friends, who are mostly left-wing intellectuals at the university where he teaches. These are highly informed, sophisticated, accomplished people, philosophers, anthropologists, a humanitarian aid worker. We share a worldview, a moral sensibility, a pride in holding certain values, and a great deal of warmth. In the course of our dinner, the name of well-known journalist, acclaim for his writings on genocide in Africa, comes up. Oh, he's a Zionist, one person says disparagingly, and others dutifully shake their heads in condensation and dismay. So that's where you, having established your voice enter the picture. So how is that uh, a prompt for what follows this book that we're going to be discussing? Uh, Yeah, so I think in a way, uh, my book, unfortunately, and this makes me sad, is more relevant today than when I wrote it. Uh, Zionism, of course, is the movement for self-determination of the Jewish people. There are all sorts of Zionists, right-wing, left-wing, religious, secular, racists, universalists. Uh, but I think that the the whole idea of Zionism has become, um, if, if not an unutterable word, and a very dirty word um, among much of the left, and I think even among many young liberal uh, uh, people who are not even necessarily of the left. I think that it's been completely, completely, I shouldn't say completely, 
but I, I would say that that the whole movement um, and the whole aim of Zionism and the accomplishments of Zionism and the necessity of Zionism uh, have been have been buried uh, in in current discourse. But but and, just but just to go back to that that moment, I wanted to sort of capture the. You said it was sort of an emotional moment as well. I mean, what was it that you know? I mean, it's quite a bit for you know, authors to undertake a book project, as I know from my own experience. I mean, what you know, we will get into sort of where we are today, but I'm just kind of wondering, this is now 2011, 12 years ago. What what was it that, that you know, how, how how did you feel at that at that moment, I guess, you know, being there at that dinner party, excluded or? Uh... No, I didn't feel excluded. I felt mortified and I felt angry. Okay. And, and, Please elaborate. Uh, I felt angry at here were very educated people who presumably know a lot about the world. And I felt knew nothing about what they were talking about, knew nothing about the history of what they were talking about. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I didn't feel, uh, uh, I felt very angry at the kind of ignorance that I saw in the room. Uh, and I also, I guess, felt somewhat shocked at the distance between me and people with whom I felt mm -hmm. I had a lot of community of interest on on many other topics. Shocked is a, is a, I mean, that's a powerful word. Yeah, yeah. So it showed me sort of the chasm between where I was and where many people who I sort of assumed were on, quote, my side other issues more than my side who share a certain worldview uh, on all sorts of issues. But here was a very crucial issue uh, and there was obviously a chasm between us. I think that they were probably a bit shamed too because when I identified myself as a left-wing Zionist, they were all very quiet. And I think that they were probably shocked by me saying that but maybe they were a bit ashamed uh, and perhaps uh, suspected that perhaps they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, but I don't but I don't know if that's true. We ne we actually never pursued it. Right. Well, and there and and there it is a point as well. Um, this notion of a chasm maybe is worth exploring as well, because there are all kinds of cha chasms. I mean, there can be is this of a philosophical nature, an ideological nature, a more experiential type of one? When you say they knew nothing of what they're talking about, one wonders if they had a complete lacking in sort of experiences, perhaps, that helped to shape your view. I mean, what is the nature of the, I think, chasm? It's, it's It sounds like that's an important thing to understand. Yeah, so I think that some of these people uh, were probably uh, members of BDS, the Boycott Movement, uh, which is an anti-Zionist movement. Uh, it claims to simply want to end the occupation, but it actually has many other... Yeah, BDS, now tell, what does that stand for? The BDS is the Boycott Divest, uh, BDS Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. And on the one hand, BDS has been a complete failure uh, it's never stopped one settlement. I oppose the settlements, by the way. I oppose the occupation. It's never stopped one settlement. 
Uh, it certainly hasn't led to a boycott of Israel. On the contrary, Israel's economy has grown by leaps and bounds uh, since BDS. It certainly hasn't led to sanctions. On the contrary, uh, many uh, countries that used to boycott uh, Israel, including in Africa and in the Arab world, no longer do. They have all sorts of uh, financial and security and economic relations with Israel. So in all those ways, it's a complete failure, although its advocates seem to be unaware of that. But it has been a success in the sense that it has held mainly on college campuses uh, in delegitimizing the whole idea of Israel uh, and in making Israelis into uh, pariahs, I would say, on on some college campuses. So, so they were probably, you think, members. So this was... Yeah, I think there's, they were some <clears throat> of supporters of BDS. Yeah. So among other things, BDS people do not go to Israel uh, because Israel is, you know, the evil empire that they can't go to. Uh, so their knowledge, both of Israel, including with all its flaws, which are very serious and contradictions, and also the history of Israel, the history of Zionism, um, they know nothing about. They know but, nothing but about. The, but let's stop there. I mean, you know, there were, even if one doesn't travel to Israel, I mean, there is an absolute wealth of li literature of so many different varieties about Israel slash Palestine, everything from the travelogues and personal diaries to, you know, meditations yeah, so I, I, on the subject. I mean, who, you know, who would not read these kinds of things if they were interested in, in the in the area? Yeah, I think you're sort of missing the point. They're not interested in the area. They're not interested in the history. They have a sort of cliff notes view of the history uh, that, that Zionism is, quote, settler colonialism, and this is all they need to know. Uh, so no, they they know. Of course, there's an incredible amount that's been written um, about Israel, about its founding, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Hundreds and hundreds of books. Uh, I don't think that most people. In fact, I know uh, that most people do not read them, uh, and they also, frankly, know virtually nothing about the Palestinian national movement, which also has many different aspects, uh, many different groups, different aims, a whole history. They know nothing about that so either. The, yeah. So the chasm here, I mean, I'm just trying to establish that is sort of one of, it's it's of, in your mind, it's one of knowledge or lack of knowledge, lack of experience. And, but also because of no, this whole no, issue. that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. It's I'm sorry. Go ahead. knowledge comes from the attitude, not vice versa. They don't have any knowledge because they've decided a priori that Israel is an illegitimate state. And that's where the lack of knowledge comes in. They don't need to know anything else because they've already asserted that. They've already decided that. So, no, these are educated people. Of course, they could read if they wanted to. Yes, of course. Of course. I don't mean so to suggest the, the that. The lack of knowledge comes from the politics, not vice versa. Mm -hmm. And the politics is something you identify in your book with the left, broadly speaking. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are different kinds of the left. I think there always has been. Um, I think that there is what you would call, what used to be called the anti-imperialist left, which is now called the anti-colonialist left or the decolonialist left which tends to be extremely anti-Zionist. 
Uh, but I think there are other parts of the left also. I mean, I consider myself a part of the left and I don't identify with that part of the left at all. So I think that there are different uh, parts of the left, but I would say that often the most, the most, uh, the loudest, <laughs> I would say part of the left has sometimes been the anti-imperialist and now what calls itself the anti-colonialist left. And to go to your book, because I think we can start to flesh out some of these themes. I mean, the chapter, maybe to begin, is with the chapter on Isaac... Deutscher. Uh, Deutscher, yes. Um, whom I find to be a fascinating figure. And I thank you because you uh, prompted me to read in full an essay that I, I probably should have read long ago about the non-Jewish Jew. So... Um, one reason I think everyone should have a look and read of um, of Susie's book is because I think it can in inspire a kind of voyage that can be useful for, for people, for any curious person. So who was he and how does he kind of figure in your sort of constellation? Yeah, so Isaac Deutscher, he is a fascinating character. Uh, he was a Marxist historian. Uh, very, he's, he's most famous, uh, for the trilogy, uh, of, uh, the, the bi biographical trilogy that he wrote on Trotsky. Right. Uh, he was an anti-Stalinist Marxist. Yeah. Uh, so wrote on Stalin. So was uh, Trotsky, right? I mean, yeah, so it became, Trotsky, yeah, born uh, Lev, uh, Lev Bronstein, as I recall, yeah. in the Kherson region of uh, southern Ukraine. Yeah, and I think that, that Deutsche was a brilliant historian. It's really a, a wonderful trilogy. Um, His language, just to say, I mean, I'm just astonished. I mean, amazed having tried to learn some languages myself. It is, I mean, his English is just... I mean, he has a style. It's, it's fluid. I mean, these are his sentences, right? He's not... There's no yeah. translation here. No, he wrote in English, but he's born in Poland. Yeah, a very uh, Orthodox family. He was Galicia, po Galician Poland. Very brilliant. Was actually supposed to be a rabbinic scholar. Yeah, of course. And he uh, becomes a secularist. He becomes Marxist. Uh, he does join the Communist Party in Poland, uh, but he escapes Poland, luckily, just in time. He goes to uh, he goes to Britain. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, among other things, English was not his first language, obviously. He was a wonderful, wonderful writer. Uh, and he was lucky uh, to escape. Uh, most of the members of the Polish Communist Party were killed by Stalin. And uh, most of Isaac Deutscher's family, uh, large family, was killed in Auschwitz. And so, like many Marxists, Deutscher was an anti-Zionist uh, because he was a, a anti-nationalist. He was a universalist. And of course, there's a big debate on the Jewish question. Yes, I want to get into that because I think, it, the, as you elucidate, it's an important Tension. But about this business with the nation state, just to say, I mean, it was more than that, right? I mean, people like Trotsky, they viewed the nation state as almost like an atavism, right? I mean, it was supposed to kind of dissolve because of the higher sort of solidarity between the, the classes, the working classes and so forth, right? I mean, this was kind of a, a very important a aspect of his worldview. 
Yeah, and of course, this is one of the things that Marxists were completely wrong about. Uh, the the uh, motto, the working class has no nation. Well, the working class group to be have many nations that they were willing to die for and fight for. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg, who was also very anti-nationalist, but interestingly, she also criticized that as a kind of extremism of the left to not understand uh, uh, national uh, loyalties. Uh, and it's very interesting, actually, if I could make a sort of side, little side observation in my teaching, my American students, when I ask them, you know, what holds America together or what, you know, what's an American value, values or what is American citizenship? What does that mean? They have no answer. They're actually sort of appalled by the question. Yeah. Uh, no answer at all. Well, Why would they be appalled? Uh, because they associate any sort of patriotism with reaction, that patriotism is the right. Even the word, I mean, you know, I understand the word nationalism has a lot of baggage yeah, sometimes, okay. but patriotism itself is not a positive value. Exactly. But my international students who come from Russia, who come from Turkey, who come from all sorts of places, they have a very different view. They very much, they hate their governments, but very much identify with the nation, with the people, with the history, with the language, with the culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can understand. I mean, I, having, I should say, my, I was in Ukraine in September, and but believe me, I came back with quite a... Uh, yeah. You yeah. know, a, a lot of thoughts about how, in fact, I've, I'm writing about the the sort of the revival of nationalism in Ukraine, which I think to some degree is a function of course of, of Putin's kind of expressed de desire to wipe out, you know, Ukrainian and nationhood. So uh, I'm completely with you there. I mean, the nationalism just as an objective fact has per persisted. Uh, and not just, you know, in the minds of, of nationalist, you know, type writers and so forth, but among very much everyday people. Yeah, I have to say, I think one of the big mistakes of the left here is to allow the, the right, the Trumpian right, to sort of, quote, own patriotism. Absolutely. And I should say my friend and author, uh, John Judas, who wrote a book, uh, well, you know, he also wrote, John wrote a book about the sort of origins of uh, of Israel called G Genesis, but he also wrote a book about, a, a short book about na nationalism. And John is himself kind of broadly speaking, not to speak for him of the left, but he decries this sort of absence uh, or, uh, you know, of the, you know he, the patriotism, which he views as an essential kind of binding ingredient, politically speaking, for the revival of a kind of proper, in his mind, you know, progressive yeah. politics in America, but he's swimming against the tide. Yeah, very much so. I, I should say that uh, in 1968, my, my father was a leftist. Uh, he, the people he revered most in the world were people who had fought in the Spanish Civil War. Well, there you go. And in 1960, he was the first person with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He said to me, Susie, this is phony. Okay. This war is being waged as a lie. And I started where I was only in like third. I started wearing a little button that said, U.S. out of Vietnam. You were in third grade. Yeah, third grade. Like, Where's Vietnam? We're not in Vietnam. That's, that's hilarious. So he well, he had good instincts. 
Yeah, so 1968, we had a house out at, at uh, we had a summer house in Fire Island, 1968, height of the anti-war. Yeah, yeah, that was quite a year. Mm-hmm. July 4th, my father, and my father fought in World War II. Okay. July 4th, he puts an American flag out in front of our house. Uh-oh. And I was involved. Yeah. And I said, Dad, yeah. that's what the Dixon people do. Yeah, oh. He said, no, it's not. He said, this is our country, too. Yeah. They own it. I fought for it. It's our country, too. And that was a real lesson to me. Yeah, well, good for your father, I would yeah. say. To, to not let other people define what what patriotism is. Yeah. Well, I find myself to- toggling a little bit, as I did in reading your book, between there's this kind of when we talk about the left and the principle of universalism and so forth, with going back to Isaac Deutscher, he kind of illustrated it's not though really just a, a philosophical or ideological point. It, it seems like it's something that's kind of deeply felt. I mean, we're kind of in the realm of, you know, maybe Trotsky wouldn't want to put it this way, but to me, we're in the realm of, you know, of emotions, of, you know, of feelings. Yeah. And Deutscher really, um, I mean, he's a complicated person, which is what makes him an interesting person. Uh, because although he is anti-Zionist, after the Holocaust, he revises or or reconsiders his positions, and he has a sense of guilt. And he says, you know, all the people that I told, you know, don't go to Palestine, stay here and make the revolution, were killed. They were either killed by the Nazis or they were killed by the Soviets. Well, that, that would probably have an impact. Uh, and much of his family was killed. And he had relatives in Russia, in, uh, sorry, he had relatives in Israel. And he would go to Israel in the 50s. And he was actually very much in love with the kibbutzim. He thought this was the purest form of socialism on yeah, earth. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> and of course, you know, tragically, those are the exact communities that Hamas destroyed uh, on October 7th. Uh, and he would have a lot of debates with his rallies. And he would say, I don't really understand why I'm an anti-Zionist, but, you know, they seem to accept it. So he, he had, uh, you know, he, he never became a Zionist, but he he reconsidered his anti-Zionism. And he I think that he understood the necessity um, of, of having, that there had to be one place in the world for the Jewish people to have refuge and also to develop themselves, uh, yeah, in the, economically, um, linguistically, etc. And even Trotsky, I mean, is you know, <laughs> you you quote Trotsky about understanding the power of pogroms, and you know, you give them a little wine and compound that with their rage, and they're capable of everything and anything. I mean, he understood that as as well. But more than that, I mean, Trotsky actually, no one, of course, really could, quote, predict the Holocaust. But Trotsky in the 30s says that there will be a coming war, mm-hmm. world war, and the Jewish people will be exterminated. He basically predicts that. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think the world war thing was a probably part of the litany of, you know, the, the whole kind of how the capitalists will, you know, slaughter each other sort of theme. Yeah, I mean, but he he says, you know, that the Jewish people are being squeezed all over the world. There's no place where they can live. I mean, he sees this happening. Yeah. 
eyes of fascism. Sure. Well, smart guy. I mean, for everything else you might want to say about him. So anyway, you alluded or we alluded to the Jewish question. So yeah, there's a big debate, uh, which is an old debate. I guess it's an early 20th century debate, but obviously picks up steam in the 20s and 30s uh, between socialists and communists who are saying we need to make the revolution and that's what will destroy anti-Semitism. And Zionists who say there's no place, look what's happening. There's no place for us in Europe. They don't want us. Uh, this wasn't just the Nazis. I mean, there were country after country. There were where the rise of very powerful. Factions. Yeah. Well, that was sort of Herzl. I mean, in an earlier time, yeah. but his whole idea was we can't, you know, in Europe. But he he thought the solution to anti-Semitism was a Zionist homeland, yeah. which is sort yeah. of another story. And that, of course, was pre-fascist. But with the rise of fascism, which was so uh, uh, determinedly anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so you have this whole whole debate. Uh, should we stay or should we go? And if we go, where can we even go? Well, there were fewer and fewer places to go. Palestine in 1939 was one of the few. Yeah, I mean, it was, and, and again, you know, I hope, another little segue here, but uh, I flagged for you that that recent piece in the New York Times about so-called diasporism becoming, I don't even know what to think about that that word, but becoming a kind of thing among a, a certain subset, I suppose we could say, of, of Jewish thinkers, including even some you know rabbis in America. So it, it to me, it feels very familiar, but I have to ask you, I mean, is there anything uh, coherent to so-called diasporism, uh, or is it just a kind of reflexive response to what we're now seeing in Israel and a lot of anguish felt by many Jews on the left to what we're seeing? So I think that like Zionism, there are lots of different forms of diasporism. Okay. Um, obviously, I'm part of the diaspora. But you are you a uh, diasporist? No, but you know, I I obviously have have benefited uh, from from the diaspora. The diaspora saved my relatives' lives. Um, so you know, the 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 piece said that the most extreme form of Zionism is that all Jews should live in Israel. Very, 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 very few Israelis think that. I, I that I mean. That's actually not what Zionism means today. Very few Israelis would ever say that. So yeah, there is a flourishing diaspora. Although I should say that the American diaspora, which I think a lot of American Jews don't understand, is very, very, very exceptional. We are the exception to 2,000 years of Jewish history. You mean in yes. the sense of its uh, relative safety and security? Yeah, yeah we have Yeah, I would toss in Canada too, I think. Yeah, there aren't a huge number of Jews in Canada. Of course, there are Jews in uh, in in the European countries, but but for the most, although Australia, I think of it as a Western, and to some degree, the Western, you know, the you know the, Anglo, particularly the Anglo uh, countries, sort of yeah, English English speaking. Yeah, there's a. I would say there's a very very strong anti-Semitic movement uh, in in Britain. Okay. Uh, and also in France. Well, yes. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so, and certainly in Hung well, Eastern European countries, Hungary, Poland, etc. They don't have very many Jews left. Um, but anyway, 
So, yeah, I mean, Jews certainly in America have been able to flourish in the diaspora. And diasporism can also mean, uh, uh, you know, the the cultivation of Yiddish, which Israelis don't speak Yiddish. Yiddish is sort of reviled, was reviled by the early Zionists. Uh, you know, so it can mean all sorts of this kind of flourishing Jewish life um, or religious or secular outside of Israel. So that's one thing it can mean. But what I found fascinating, and I have to say also somewhat hilarious about that article, uh, one is that a lot of these young lefty Jews who, who want to dissociate themselves from Israel, nation state, it's terrible, nation state for the Jewish people, terrible, diaspora is so great. They're exact same people who are saying that the Palestinian diaspora is a tragedy, is a crime. So the Palestinian diaspora is terrible. The Palestinians need a nation state, but the Jewish diaspora, that's great. We don't need a nation state. I'm like, wait a second. Um, there's like a huge cognitive disconnect here. If it's going to be a diasporan, what's wrong with the Palestinian diaspora? And by the way, there are many, many Palestinians in the diaspora all over the world who are actually very successful in the West, in the Gulf countries, et cetera, in, in the U.S. So, yeah, there's a diaspora of the Palestinians. But if you think that that is a crime, the Nakba, a crime that has to be has to be uh, uh, reversed, um, then why is the Jewish diaspora so great? And again, it seems to me to be a kind of uh, uh, almost like a kind of American narcissism that you're looking at the American diaspora, but you're not really looking at what 2,000 years of the diaspora yeah. in the and in the Arab world meant. Jews were kicked out of everywhere. If I could just say one other thing. So Molly Crabapple, who, who is uh, a leftist, I think she's, I, I don't know if she's an anti-Zionist, but certainly very critical of Israel. She's talking about the Bund. And the Bund was the uh, organization, the Jewish organization in the Soviet Union that believed in staying in the Soviet Union, but uh, but, but believed in uh, cultivating a flourishing Jewish life, Yiddish, the Yiddish theater, Yiddish literature, culture. The Bund was wonderful, but she doesn't seem to understand or has sort of forgotten is that everyone in the Bund was killed. The Soviets killed everyone in the Bund. So to say that this is sort of your great model seems to me to be evading what that model resulted in. And you really cannot do that. If you're a political thinker, you can't just pick and choose what you want. You've got to really look at the whole historic experience. Yeah. And I feel like to go back to Deutsche, that this is maybe an iteration of the this theme, the the, uh, the wonders of the diaspora, about you know, it's really kind of a, a Jewish debate again about principles of you know universalism, uh, which uh, are enshrined, I think, uh, among some some Jews, particularly on the left, and then the more nation state or tr tribal, if that's not too bad a word to use. So it's just part of that tension that that continues to exist, which is one thing I find fascinating, that these things do not go away. But I want to turn, you know... If I could just read one thing that Deutscher wrote, this is after the Holocaust, 
which he says, historians can't really understand it. Maybe we need a Sophocles or an Aeschylus to understand this. So he forgot his Yiddish, his first language. He forgot his Hebrew, his second language. Uh, and he remained an anti-Zionist. Um, but he said, I am, however, a Jew by force of my unconditional solidarity with the persecuted and exterminated. I am a Jew because I feel the Jewish tragedy as my own tragedy because I feel the pulse of Jewish history. And to feel the pulse of Jewish history is exactly what I feel that a lot of these uh, young anti-Zionists or diasporists or whatever have sort of forgotten what is the pulse of Jewish history. And it's not just your life living in Brooklyn. Yes. Well, that's a, I think that might apply to quite a number of things, but, uh, but let's move on from Brooklyn. So I.F. Stone, I mean, obviously uh, of a different generation. What does he, how does he speak to us now? I mean, just a little bit uh, on my part, I, I found myself fascinated by this chapter because there was such a trajectory that, that seemed to be uh, an arc that, that seemed so startling. You know, he went, he wrote one of the, with, I guess, Robert Kappa, one of the all-time sort of Zionist pans. What is it? This this is I I Israel. And he went on this voyage. Earlier he wrote about, you know, uh, with the, with the, the coming of the the Jews from Europe, the refugees to Israel, and then not to give all the story away, we find I guess it was 1967 or so. Thereafter, he writes in the New York Review of Books this kind of revisionist piece that seems to thrust him in an entirely different direction, and it doesn't seem to be entirely ex explained either in some terms. But that's what I found sort of fascinating about. I.F. Stone, but maybe we you could talk a little bit about how he fits into your scheme. Yeah, so I.F. Stone, again, was sort of a hero of mine growing up. My parents subscribed to I.F. Stone's Weekly. He was one of the very, very, very few journalists who openly opposed McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy became a real pariah in the journalism war. He started his own newsletter. This is where my father learned that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was false. Um, and yeah, so early on, he's definitely a Zionist. Uh, he goes uh, with on this uh, underground journey. Yes. The survivors of the camps to Palestine. Yeah, it seems very romantic in a way as well, and right? Yes, you know, nothing is going to stop them. They're going to build a homeland. These are the remnants um, of, of the extermination. Uh, he's also very taken, again, with the kibbutzim, with what the Zionists have built. He and Robert Kappa, who's the subject of my first book about uh, photography, uh, Kappa, of course, a left-wing journalist, uh, sorry, photojournalist, famous from the Spanish Civil War, also a Jewish refugee from Hungary. They go to Israel, they write this, uh, they do this book together. This is Israel with these very heroic pictures of the farmers and soldiers and the life being built. And he continues to re uh, report in I.F. Stone's Weekly throughout the 50s. He's very, very critical, not of Israel, but of the Arab countries, which, of course, were all these reactionary, feudal, terrible regimes. Um, uh, he does have a big uh, reversal in 67. 
Uh, and now we're I, talking about I.F. Stone, yeah. I.F. Stone, yeah. Uh, Isaac Deutsch's last interview was also after the 67 war, very, very uh, anti-Israel. And he has a big reversal in 67 uh, with with the the uh, the beginning really of the occupation of the of, of the occupation of uh, uh, of the Palestinian territories. I should say, by the way, they weren't called Palestinian territories at this time because Gaza was owned by Egypt and the West Bank was owned by Jordan. Golan Heights were owned by Syria. So people actually originally referred to them as the Palestinian territories. They were Arab territories. Um, and whether the Arab states had any interest in a Palestinian state is a whole other thorny question. But in any case, yeah, he becomes very critical of Israel uh, after uh, 67. And I think that in a way he went to... Uh, in my view, not just a critique um, of the occupation, but he seemed almost to have a sort of reaction formation against Israel, against his former support. Maybe that was a sense of being sort of feeling heartbroken and betrayed of what he wanted Israel to be. Ah, so it wasn't entirely a kind of yeah, philosophical or ideological uh reversal or a sense of, you know, I need to correct for what I, you know, said before. Right. But that's my psychoanalytic interpretation. Yeah. But Not that's okay. Well, I know, but we're just talking and I, you know, I, I, I tend to resist the idea that anything can be purely on a ideas, you know, basis. I just don't know that that really works in the real world. But one of the things I think that he got wrong, and this is, I think, true of a lot of um, of people is just a complete misunderstanding of what was going on in the Arab countries. So at a certain point, he puts forth Lebanon, you know, which has many different religions and sects. Yes, yes, very and much so. That's the model for Israel. Sectarian. No, no, that somehow uh, the Jewish Israelis and Palestinians can come together. And I'm like, wait a second. Lebanon dissolved into a terrible sectarian 15-year civil war of unbelievable brutality, which has, by the way, never recovered from. It's now a failed state. Yeah, I think the world's newspapers have documented that. So the idea that Lebanon is the sort of multicultural model for the Middle East proved catastrophically wrong. The other thing that I, I think that he was just catastrophically wrong um, in and just not, not really understanding a lot of what was going on in the Arab world is that when Egypt and Israel do sign the peace agreement finally, yes, years at a few years, Jimmy after, Carter uh, helped put together the seventy-three war. He says, "Oh, you know, this is the model. Now the Arab states will follow." Well, no, the Arab states actually ejected Egypt from the Arab League. Egypt became a pariah. Yes, filed as a traitor. Sadat so, was assassinated. Sadat is assassinated. So far from again this being the model, it was sort of the anti-model for much of the Arab world. Well, this, well that yeah. seems obtuse on his part, which also seems uncharacteristic of him because we think of him. Many people think of him as such a sharp and incisive thinker who had a purchase on reality. I think that. One of the ironies of debates about Israel and the Arab countries or Israel and Palestine is that most people 
are very focused on Israel and actually don't care that much and aren't that interested in what's going on in the Arab world. Almost a, a, a kind of, dare I say, a kind of uh, maybe almost like a kind of Jewish narcissism that you're not really looking at what, you know, the political developments in the other side, which have to be taken seriously. Yeah, navel gazing. Or, or just, you know, a very, uh, a, a very sharp focus on, you know, all the internal contradictions in Israel and the different, you know, populations and Israel, ethnic, this, that, secular, religious, all of that. But you're sort of not really looking at the rest. Yeah. So Was one there... tiny country you're very focused on and this huge section of the world, you're sort of not really very attuned to to what is happening. I, I think that's been a real uh uh a real drawback in a lot of analyses. Of yeah. Well is there also kind of a herd mentality? I mean not to be unfair to IF Stone, but you know, did he he kind of joined the quote unquote correct side in a sense that You've sort of found yourself on the other side of at the 2011 yeah. dinner party, but again, I don't think of Ayastone as the kind of person who feels like he needs, you know, to be on the, you know, the quote unquote right side. But nevertheless, I mean, these can be important, you know, gravitational kind of poles in in sort of movement politics, no matter what portion of the ideological spectrum the movement lies on. Yeah, I think that's true of a lot of people. I'm not sure I would say it's true of Ayastone just because so courageous in the McCarthy's of being this really this lone figure. Uh, he writes about how he couldn't even be invited. No one wanted to be at a dinner party with him. Well, there you go. <laughs> if you were at a dinner party with I.F. Stone, maybe you were a fellow traveler and be, could be called. Yeah. yeah. And so he was very courageous. So I, I, I'm not I'm not really sure. And I have to say that the rightward trajectory of Israel has broken a lot of hearts. It's broken my heart. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I I think that was part of it. But I also think, and I, I see this even today, frankly, this lack of interest in, in Arab politics and Palestinian politics. I've noticed in the current uh, uh, Israel-Hamas war, I watch, I admit, I watch CNN, I watch the BBC. Oh, how can you? Uh, I go on to Al Jazeera. And it's very interesting to me that when Israelis are interviewed, even Israelis whose you know relatives are kidnapped or whose relatives have been killed, people who are grieving, they're always asked about their political views. So what do you think about the war? What do you think about Netanyahu? What do you think about all the deaths in God? You know, they're asked for their political views. I have never once, I'm not talking about political analysts, but never once uh, seen anyone in Gaza. And some of the people in Gaza who are being interviewed are, you know, they work for aid agencies, they work for UN agencies, they're obviously very educated, they're very articulate. They are never, ever, ever asked for their political views. Yeah, the different uh... deaths. They talk about their relatives being killed, which of course I understand, but they're never, they, they talk sometimes, I was surprised by the October 7th attack. Oh, well, what did you think? What do you think now? What would you say to the Hamas leadership if you could speak to them now? 
they're never asked. It's as if they don't have any politics. They're just victims. Right. Yeah. So much. Uh, it, this is a problem with journalism. It's a problem with political analysis, and it's definitely a problem with political activism. That the the Palestinians they don't actually formulate political ideas, political movements, et cetera, et cetera. They're just victims. Yeah, in the, the in the way the journalism presents. I want to um, before we move away from <clears throat> I have Stone. I don't think I can let pass what you just said about that. It's broken my heart too. Um, I mean, not to dwell on it, but what what has uh, how has your heart been broken? Oh, well, first off, and I don't blame them completely for this, but clearly there's been 50 years of occupation that the Israelis haven't been able to find any solution to. And again, it's not only their responsibility. There have been pre-peace uh, uh, negotiations which the Palestinians have always rejected. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not, it's not that I am blaming them completely, but they are the more powerful uh, force. Uh, and I think that a lot of Israelis have just wanted to sort of kick this down the road uh, and it's had catastrophic effects. And of course, the country has moved very far to the right. Now, that's in a way not surprising. Terrorism always moves people to the right. But they, they have, especially after the Second Intifada, the suicide bombings basically destroyed the Israeli left. Uh, so the country has moved much more to the right. Uh, uh, you know, they have a government now, probably the most terrible government, not mo probably definitely the most terrible government um, in, in the history of Israel. Uh, a friend of mine uh, uh Cause Netanyahu says that Netanyahu is the worst leader in the history of the Jewish people. Wow! Well, I remember you know people that many people had not such nice things to say about Ariel Sharon when he was. Yeah, in this is uh, Ariel Sharon. I think was actually a realist who withdrew withdrew from Gaza, which I think was the right thing to do. Uh, so you have this terrible uh, uh, government with with really self avowed racists and fascists in it. Uh, people who believe that all of what was mandatory Palestine is, quote, Jewish, uh, resettling Gaza, which is an insane idea. There's much more racism. There are obviously very anti-democratic uh, uh, initiatives. I was very, very, very heartened by those huge pro-democracy uh, demonstrations for months. Yes, it, over the, the so-called judicial yeah, Hundreds of thousands forms. of people. Yes, really. there's still a lot of energy and vitality in Israeli yeah. politics. So, okay, I get the sense of what you mean by that. And I wanted, you know, from I.O. Stone, you, we've talked about, you've talked about how little interest and in knowledge there has been in sort of the Arab politics, the Arab world. The third figure from your book, that I'd like to discuss is Fred Halliday, who is perhaps tellingly not a Jewish person, but who had an immense uh, wealth and variety of knowledge in the so-called the Arab world and, and beyond that in the Middle East. And he spoke the languages. And I will say personally, I went to the London School of Economics, but graduated, unfortunately, in the international relations program a couple of years before he joined that program. So, uh, you know, I, I, I regard him as a really nuanced uh, thinker with all this knowledge. So, but, but why does he belong in this book? 
Yeah. So Halliday, uh, who died too early, and I have to say, I think we need Halliday's voice and his analysis so desperately right now. Um, and by the way, I get emails sometimes from students who did study with him at yeah. economics. Oh, nice. Uh, he was so beloved. Yeah, they, uh, well, they've read your chapter, undoubtedly, which is yeah. very... I think of maybe all of the chapters, maybe this is just my own personal sense, it was, you know, you could really just a, a deep uh, re respect that you you know, you, you have for him yeah. as well, I, right? I do. And one of the things I respect is also that unlike a lot of other people, uh, he was willing to reconsider and revise his ideas that history changes. Uh, if, if you don't do that, you're just a dogmatist. You're not a thinker. So, yeah, Halliday starts out very much. He's a 68er. Uh, very he's from, I, we should establish, he's like from some borderland town in Ireland. Ireland. He's not, he's not Jewish. And he's, he's not, not also from imperial, you know, or what was left of imperial Britain, which I think is an important point as well, right? He's his, his, his his experience, his life is, you know, he was bred kind of to be an anti-imperialist or colonialist. And he's from a, quote, mixed marriage. Mixed marriage. <laughs> marriage, which in Ireland is definitely a mixed marriage. Yes, it is. Um, so, but he's, you know, very, he goes, he's in London. He's very much a 68er. Uh, and he's an amazing, he's a specialist in international relations, especially in the Muslim and Arab world. And he's an incredible linguist. He speaks everything. Yeah. Incredible. Farsi, Arabic, Spanish, Russian. Uh, I mean, just. Uh, it's ridiculous. And he considers himself a revolutionary. He goes to Iran, he's very interested in Iran and also in Yemen, uh, which has become uh, another it, it failed state. Uh, he goes to Iran right before the revolution there, and he brings a copy of Che Guevara's writings translated into Farsi. <laughs> well, that's and a he, that's a keeper. And he writes that there's going to be. He sees, uh, you know, the ferment, the anti-Shah ferment. He says there's going to be a socialist revolution. He he thinks it's going to be sort of a normal socialist revolution. Yeah, maybe not. Iran <laughs> had a very, very strong communist party at the time. And of course, then and he's he's writing for one of the main British papers. I forget which one. But then uh, the Shah is deposed, Khomeini comes to power, and he sees what's happening in the streets, you know, these battles in the streets. And he sees these uh, the Islamists are coming to power, which he identifies correctly as a reactionary force. And he says, I've stood in the streets of Tehran hearing thousands of people cry death to liberalism, and I knew that they meant me. And he talks about how women were in the, in these movements uh, uh, advocating for the for the reversal of their rights. You know, these black clad women who didn't want rights. Um, so that begins to change his thinking. And also personally, an enormous number of his friends in Iran are executed. Yeah. Well, that will have a, a certain uh, penetrating kind of quality to one's thoughts. The communists, the leftists, the feminists, the secularists. Yeah. yeah. 
So, but he's traveling all around in what's called the arc of conflict. He's in Yemen. He's in the all the Arab countries. Lebanon. This meeting with the the Hezbollah. I, I was reading a little bit from his own, uh, you know, chronicles where he 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 would seem to go. People would just call him up, like, "Oh yeah, by the way, we know you're here in Beirut. Would you like to meet with like you know the political commander of of Hezbollah? Like, you know, we'll send a car." He's talking with everyone. Everyone wants to speak to him. He's speaking, of course, in their language. Um, and he's he go, he goes to Israel. He's in you know he's he's really all over. But his uh uh and in fact he has an argument uh is it with I think it's with a Hezbollah commander about political Islam and yeah yeah I read a bit I read his piece about that he wasn't afraid to assert his views even when he was in the most sort of inhospitable of environments, you know? Yeah. So his first interview in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is with someone named Ghassan, Ghassan Kanafani, who was the head of a very, very militant organization that that uh, uh, launched a lot of terrorist attacks, the PFLP, the Mossad. Yeah, Popular Fund for the Liberation of Palestine. And, uh, Fred is asking him, uh, they, they were launching terrorist attacks and also airplane hijackings. And it's clear that Halliday isn't really questioning him about the, the moral import of, of uh, uh, airplane hijackings. But it's sort of clear from the interview that he thinks this is like a political disaster. Anyway, so he's traveling all around. He's in Saddam's Iraq. He's in Assad, Syria, you know, these terrible, terrible... Yeah, yeah, he has this appreciation of the the sort of some of the really radical and militant aspects of uh, the political c- cultures that, that, as we were saying before, you, you feel that, particularly in America, some of these lefty, uh, you know, anti-Zionist uh, J- Jewish people lack. Yeah, so his thinking, re- exactly, so his thinking really begins to change and he begins to question, quote, anti-imperialism. And he says, wait a second. You know, these, quote, anti-imperialist nations are actually among the most fearful, repressive countries in the world. They repress their people. They're based on torture. They repress women. There's no freedom of speech, of press. Their intellectuals are outside the country, hunted. And so he really begins to revise his thinking and it's not that he becomes pro-imperialism or pro-colonialism, but he gets to posit that when you look at a regime, what you have to look at is human rights, that every regime has to be based not on who its enemies are, not that it's the, quote, axis of resistance. Forget about resistance. What are you, what, what kind, what kind of, of, of nation have you established among people? And he also becomes a two-stater, which he had not been before. And he says, wait a second, you know, the Palestinians need a state. But this this vilification of Israel as, as an illegitimate state is also politically and morally bankrupt. Uh, he also warns the Palestinians. He says, you know, the moment can pass for any people if they don't, if they can't establish nationhood at a certain point, it won't always necessarily come back again. And he sort of warns the Palestinians to drop, uh, I think what he was saying is to drop the terrorism, to drop the exterminationist and come to, come to an acceptance of two states. 
Uh, and I should say that even people like Chomsky and other leftists, uh, this is also in my book, were meeting with the PLO and begging them to do this. They were saying, put forth something that most Israelis will be able to accept. You can't just keep saying you're going to destroy the Zionist enterprise. Um, so Halliday really, really changes uh, his thinking. Uh, he writes then a lot about terror. Uh, he yeah, writes, I was going to mention Hamas because in the book, it's, you know, Holiday is, he lived long enough to to see the uh, the yeah. charter of Hamas, which I think is 1988, I want to say, and uh, and thereafter, you know, the deeds. So, so he, that seemed important that he had a purchase on terrorism and kind of the opposite in some ways, not to mischaracterize a uh, uh, Sartre or or Fanon, but but you know I read Sartre's introduction to Fanon's uh, treatise, and there's quite a bit in there about this sort of ther therapeutic and cl cleansing notion of of violence on the part of the uh, oppressed and uh, the wretched of the earth, and and I think that uh, Fred, not to speak for Fred, he probably would have thought of that as nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I think also, I mean, he really was a dialectical thinker because, again, he writes a lot after the 9-11 attack of Al-Qaeda. And he says, I think, two things that are often lost in the debate about, or debate, I don't know if the right word is debate, in, in anal analysis of terrorism. And he says, on the one hand, the world is a very unequal place. And globalization has benefited a small part of the world and left much of the world immiserated. Absolutely. And he was very, very much always, always, I guess, a social democrat that believed in, you know, a world of greater equality. And he said, but terrorism has nothing to do with this. Terrorism is not the movement of the oppressed. Uh, and it is not, it, and its aim is not to create a more equal or more just world. And he points out that the vast majority of victims of terrorism are other Muslims. That most of the of the terrorist attack occurred in the Muslim world, uh, uh, killing you know unknown numbers of of Africans, of of Arabs, of women, of secularists. Yeah, he was a realist. I think of in terms of my own, you know, international relations studies at the London School of Economics. I mean, re realism is one of the principles that one learns. And realism, contrary to what people often think, is not necessarily a conservative philosophy. It can just mean being kind of clear-eyed, you know, and, and understanding how the world actually works. And I wonder how Fred, you know, with October the 7th, what his commentary would have been. I mean, in America, I mean, not to overstate it, but we did see among, I think it was in the Chicago chapter of the Black Lives Matter movement, a kind of uh, enshrinement of this this paraglider iconic figure, you know, and uh, d descending on the, on the killing, what became the killing fields of Southern Israel. I mean, what would Fred's comment have been on that to his leftist, you know, quote unquote, comrades. I mean, he would have been, I, I think, again, you know, we can't speak for someone who, who is dead. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he would have been uh, completely appalled. He, he was very, 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 he became very, very, very much against the left idealization uh, of, of terror. 
And and that the, not only was he against it, but I think the important thing is, is that he saw it as a betrayal of what leftism is, um, of the universal humane values. And he wanted the left to get back to a kind of universalism. And he paid uh, for that, too, as you know. I mean, they were friends. It was at Saeed who, you know, who shunned him for saying the, the you know, the quote unquote incorrect things. I mean, one of my takeaways from that chapter, I feel like um, if we can, you know, the sort of the terminology of Isaiah Berlin about the hedgehogs and the foxes, you know, the hedgehog, which I know he got from, you know, sort of Greek philosophy, but it's the hedgehog who knows one big thing, the fox who knows many little things. I feel like with Fred Halliday, he's much more of a fox and uh, I'm kind of partial to foxes, but I think many of the thinkers, you, you probably, they're, they're not foxes, they're hedgehogs. I mean, we haven't talked a great deal about Chomsky and we're kind of winding up here, but I, I think of him as very much of a hedgehog in his, you know, p political, uh, you know, uh, m mindset. And, and uh, Fred seems to stand out as, you know, I don't know if you agree, as one of the foxes. Yeah. And I feel, I feel sad that I think that his writings are not well enough known. Yes. Uh, not uh, in America, for sure. Yeah, partially because they're so original, uh, partially because they're not sort of easy sound bites. No, uh, uh, he's a fox. I think he's saying a lot of things that a lot of people actually don't want to hear. He gave an interview towards the end of his life. He ended up moving to Barcelona, where, of course, he learned Catalan. Yes, uh, of course he did. And uh, he gave an interview called Who is Responsible? violence. And he says, the person who commits violence is responsible. You can say X committed it, but it's really Y who caused it. No, no, no. X is responsible if you commit violence. And, you know, I would say the exact same thing about these violent settlers in the West Bank. You asked me about being heartbroken. Violent settlers who are, you know, burning down the olive trees of Palestinian this is grotesque. This, to me, is a complete betrayal of what Zionism is meant to be. So the person who commits violence is responsible for it. And that's what he would have said on October 7th. It's not, oh, it's the occupation. It's the right of return. No, 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 no. The person who commits murder, rape, burning people alive, kidnapping, is responsible for burning, rape, murder, and kidnapping. Well, there you go. Well... Susie uh, Lidfield, I want to thank you very much uh, for appearing uh, with us today. I appreciate your views. I, again, encourage people to read your book, which is The Lion's Den, Zionism in the Left, from Hannah Arendt to Noam Chomsky. This has been America and Beyond, and I'm Paul Starobin. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.